Welcome to a podcast about wealth and life. We all know that our finances play a big part in how we live our lives. In this podcast, the advisors from Foster and Motley share insights and information about investment and financial planning topics and how they connect to your life. You've probably heard the phrase value investing, and you've probably heard the name of one of its biggest proponents, Warren Buffett. But what is value investing and why does the Oracle of Omaha use it? Well, Mark Motley and Tom Guidi of Foster and Motley are here to offer some insight into the strategy. I'm Patrice Sakora. Mark, let's start with you. Would you give us a definition of value investing? Yeah, there, there actually isn't. Well, there isn't a concise <laughs> definition of value investing. Value investing is a style of investing pertaining particularly to selecting stocks. It's typically in contrast to growth investing, and it typically means that valuation measures, uh, various measures of fundamentals, and they tend to be, it's not exclusive, but re revenue, price to revenue, price to cash flow, price to earnings, price to dividends, price to book value. There are a few other permutations, but but on these, on some of these measures, the particular stock is cheaper, lower valuation than others. There, but there's not a universally accepted definition of what value is. Well, what happens when you see something you go like, oh, it looks great, it looks great, yeah. and you jump in, should you be buying it then? Yeah, it depends. <laughs> the, the answer is depends. It, it is an important tool that we use to differentiate between companies. It's not the only tool. But in the end, it's an important driver of excess return that the, as, as you mentioned, Warren Buffett, he likes to say, and it is accurate, that the most important um, factor in a, any investment's long-term return is the initial price, the, the price relative to, say, earnings. If that is cheap enough and other things are equal, then that will turn into a better long-term investment performance than otherwise. You mentioned growth investing, growth stocks. Talk about that versus value. Yeah, that's that's an even fuzzier definition because in literally by by many of the indexes, it's there's not a positive dimension of growth. It's just whatever is not value. Whatever is not value is, is actually growth. So they'll they'll take an index, the Russell one thousand, and the half of the market cap that is the cheapest is the the growth portion and the rest of it is is I mean, they have that's cheapest is the value portion and the and the rest of it is simply growth so they don't measure historical or prospective growth prospects they simply say these are the more expensive stocks therefore they must be the growth stocks that's so that's even a fuzzier definition yeah it's it's hard, really hard to sell an index <laughs> called russell 1000 expensive <laughs> or russell 1000 not value <laughs> not cheap can you give me an example Sure. There was a lot of talk recently about, um, a little less so today, but in, in this definition changed, but the fangs, you know, the Facebook, Apple, Google, Netflix, and sometimes there's, there's a Microsoft is in there and Tesla and whatever. Stocks that are very big, very expensive, many times are 40 and 50 and 60 times earnings. These are uh, recent examples of growth stocks and many of the banks selling it at 10, 11 times earnings or less. And many of the uh, energy stocks, oral companies um, are cheap. They've been out of favor lately. Those are, it, it's not purely by sector, but there are some concentrations of, of what are considered value names in certain sectors and, and growth names in other sectors like tech. 
All right. Tom, your turn. Give us a history of value <laughs> investing. Yeah. Well, when you think about you know, value investing, you're relying on, on valuing a company, determining what is the right price or the price you'd be willing to pay for a company. Um, if you're not doing that, it, it's really just speculation. You're, you're speculating that you know, somebody else is going to buy the stock from you, a, a company from you for more money at a later date. But if you're buying a company to own a company, you really need to know some fundamentals about that company. Mark used the term fundamentals before. So fundamentals really boils down to what's real. What, did a co- what does a company own? What does a company owe to somebody? What debt does it have? What cash does it have on its books? What earnings has it had? Those are all reported in financial statements today for companies, but it it wasn't always that way. In fact, the first time that there was an audited financial statement uh, in the United States for a company was back in 1903. It was U.S. Steel produced its first audited financial statement. Obviously, it it was probably a very big company. Um, at that time, smaller today, but um, well, the remnants of it are smaller today. And once you have that story behind a company, you, you can figure out what would you be willing to pay for that company. Prior to that time, investing was, you know, it's either speculation for mom and pops investors, smaller investors, or it relied on having inside information. The executives of that company knew what was going on. Maybe their friends knew some inside details about what was going on. And we term that insider trading today, but that was just the way things were done prior to that time. So we had the Great Depression in the early 1900s. And 1929, I think, was the, the kickoff of that. And the regulation coming out of that determined that having audited financial statements are really important. Uh, the SEC was formed in 1933, and they required audited financial statements for all publicly traded companies. So for the first time, for all U.S. companies, every investor was able to receive audited financial statements, more reliable information about companies that they never had before. And these these statements were all following the same format, the same rules? Yeah, there's there's, uh, accounting principles that are uh, required of all uh, financial statements. They've changed over time and evolved over time. But yes, there was kind of a general rules about how things are stated in financial statements. And at the same time, you know, during the 1920s, uh, there was a professor at Columbia named Ben Graham. Ben Graham had some ideas about how to value companies. In 1934, he published a book called Securities Analysis. It was really the, the foundational work on value investing. Um, and, you know, think about at that time, we're right after the Great Depression. A lot of companies have had uh, very depressed stock prices. 
and some of his first methodologies for how to value companies, one was termed just net-net. And net-net is you take your net cash or the cash that's on the books minus the liabilities that a company had. And that was the value of the company. Hmm. That's pretty black and white. And if you could invest in a company for less than that, it, it was considered a good investment. Um, that's not, you can't find that today, but believe it or not, if you, during the Great Depression, you could find companies like that. They trade for less than the cash that they had on their books, minus what they owed. Um, so there was some great values to be picked up then. Since that time, valuation methodologies have evolved, including Ben Graham's valuation methodologies. Uh, you, you could look at uh, what is the replacement cost of a company or even things involving what expected earnings does a company have in future years and, and valuing those things. With all the, the technology we have today, I can see taking this and just twisting it and ripping it apart and putting it back together so many different ways. I would say so. So that really got started with computers. We need computers to make all these calculations for us. For those computers to make the calculations for us, it can't be a printed out financial statement. Everything needs to be digitized where you have a record, a database of all these points from the financial statements. So that work really got started in the 1990s and professors at that time were just trying to prove out what Ben Graham did and what other value investors have done since then. And does valuation make sense? Now, let me jump you know? in here just a second. Ben Graham, Columbia. Who else went to Columbia? <laughs> so Ben Graham's famous student, you talked about him earlier, uh, Warren Buffett in the 1950s, went to Columbia. I think he got an A. <laughs> <laughs> well, if he didn't, he's earned it since then. And yes, he, he, he was a student of Ben Graham's. Ben Graham was still teaching in the 1950s. And uh, Warren Buffett was one of his students. Uh, I'm sure he still cites Ben Graham as um, foundational to his work at Berkshire Hathaway. Um, and, you know, Warren Buffett today uh, obviously is, could be considered the father of value investing, but that would make Ben Graham the grandfather of, of value investing. Did you want to talk about Ken French? Yeah, I think, I think Mark probably has more familiarity, done lots of study about factors, which were alluded to earlier. So taking pieces from the financial statements and um, equations based on those and determining if they're explanatory for future earnings for a company. Um, so you know, Mark, why don't you go ahead and talk about Ken French and um, his influence on financial markets and the work that's happened since? Uh, the work that, that he did, Fama and French, um, Gene Fama and Ken French in particular, uh, was the academic work that really laid the foundation for factor investing broadly, but value investing um, 
more you know, specifically, but the uh, uh, his definition is in one way that he's for value is one of several, and it's in some ways the easiest to measure, but it's not necessarily the best one. So there are issues with with that as well. I, I'm going to shift gears a little bit, if I may, um, so to be the politician. We're in the middle of primary season here. The mutual funds, investment managers, ETFs, if they're active, tend to fall into a value or growth camp. I don't actually think of it that way. I, I think of it as investing versus speculating. Investing means long-term investing as opposed to short-term. The value um, measures, as I mentioned earlier, are all equating or connecting price to various fundamental measure, measures. And the, the growth approach is typically one more focused on price and momentum. And it's not to say that there's not uh, uh, some efficacy to momentum over certain time periods. That's one of the identified factors, especially over the approximately one year time frame. But there's a lot of volatility in that and lots of turnover. And, and in the long run, the, the value measures tend to actually be better. But the, the issue is that if someone is a long-term investor, they need to think, as Warren Buffett says, like like owners of a business, that they're not renting a stock, owning a stock for a, for a short period of time. They are owning a, a piece of a business. And if that's your mindset, which it ought to be, we think, for, for long-term investors, then you, you need to care about the fundamentals. And if you care about the fundamentals, you care about the, the, these valuation measures of price to, to the fundamentals. And it's an example that, that sometimes I use if, if you were considering not buying a stock, but buying a small business, say it's say it doesn't require a lot of of your time necessarily or expertise say it's a a laundromat sort of reasonably self-contained um and and you have two different options and they both have they're both in similar neighborhoods they both have similar histories of of net earnings that sort of thing but one is selling for um maybe it's ten thousand dollars of of earnings per year, but the but the price is hundred thousand dollars for the for this laundry mat. But but of course of the year, you recently recently it had experienced about ten thousand dollars net, and the other one about twenty thousand dollars net. Well, one's ten times earnings, one's five times earnings. Now the the one that is more expensive may have some other advantages. It may have newer equipment. It may have reasons for for faster growth, etc. But other things being equal, if one is just a lot cheaper than the other. Then, then that's the one you would you would choose, and that's just this sort of rational that it doesn't take uh, academic studies or special experience to to have a, a, a decision like that. This is just you're buying a given amount of earnings for uh, smaller uh, dollars up front, and that's the basis for value investing. And to so to me, it's really the basis for fundamental investing and the basis for long term investing. That said. It's not nearly that easy. It gets from that sort of fundamental starting point, it gets very complex from there because it's not just a matter of oh, what's what's the earnings, which is just buy things that are the cheapest many times. The very cheapest companies are the companies that deserve to be the cheapest. And Warren Buffett has a name for that, cigar butts. Pick it off the pick it off the ground, um, and it's very cheap, didn't cost anything, but it's not worth very much either. And the so the the real challenge becomes sorting out the things that are objectively cheap 
from, uh, but but deserve to be from the things that are that are cheap simply because of of this sort of psychology crowd behavior that that everyone's got scared and run you know run away from something, uh, but they've they've taken it too far and then it's gotten overdone. And that's the it tends to be that that behavior finance. Um, has, has done a lot of work on this, but it just it tends to be that that the crowd moves too far in both directions, and and much of what value investing is about is just fading fading those things. It seems to me though that if you're going to invest over a long period of time, the risk is going to be different for growth versus value. Yes, and I'm I'm going to I'm going to turn that into a, a question: Does does the growth style or the value style? involve more risk and in, is an investor in stocks wants to mitigate minimize risk and that's a very good question and the answer unfortunately is it depends the data is not clear on this it, it partly depends on the measure it depends on the time frame there are some some academic theoretical reasons why value investing should be riskier than growth investing and there's some data to support that, but there are also some behavioral reasons that that uh, behavioral finance reasons that that some of these most expensive growth stocks have have just uh, so little valuation support. As when things turn bad for them, as they ultimately do, then there's a whole lot of, of room to fall. If you break it down into just bear markets, what which does better and worse in in bear markets, the the history is mixed also, and, and it depends on several things. My own sense is that it depends on the nature of the bear market. So there's some bear markets that are just valuation contractions, like the bear market that, that began in the, at the end of 1999. In that sort of environment, clearly it's, the, it's growth that leads the way down. There are very expensive things that lead the way down, and value greatly outperforms in that environment. There are also circumstances where there's a bear market because of Inflation or high, higher rate, you know, increasing interest rates, and the growth stocks tend to be more sensitive to that and tend to fall more. But in many cases, the economic sensitivity of value stocks, the the sectors that tend to dominate the value indexes, um, tends to be higher than for growth stocks. And so, if there is a recession expected and a bear market associated, in many of those cases. That's an environment where value stocks actually fall more. So that's a that's a long way of saying it depends. Yeah, well, well we're going into a, a, a time now where interest rates are going up. What impact will that have on value versus growth? Well, we don't know what it will have, but we can say what it has had. Um, and the, it's been a, a, a strong period of outperformance of value over growth in recent months. However, if you go dial back just a little bit to the spring of, of 2020, the COVID shutdown, the brief recession that occurred there, growth stocks sort of sailed through that and value stocks took it on the chin. And so that was a situation where the market was really scared about an economic slowdown. Things played out not great for value then. Right now, that's really not the case in spite of the negative GDP from the last quarter. Uh, a lot of the economic measures are, are pretty strong. Retail sales have been strong and unemployment's low and, and uh, there may be a recession in the uh, odds have increased. But right now, the, the market is, is looking at what is, what's immediate and real. And, and that's 
um, interest rates going up rapidly. And so that's been affecting growth stocks more. Tom, some thoughts? Yeah, value can at times be more risky. And I think you can mitigate a lot of that risk. Mitigating um, some of the the risk relative to growth stocks or relative to the market, partly it's a matter of being sector neutral. And I think we spoke about sectors in a past podcast. And, And sectors are really just all the areas of the economy. And when we were talking about growth stocks specifically, a lot of times we're alluding to technology-oriented companies, one sector of the U.S. economy or of the stock markets. But if you are a value investor, it might be tempting just to ignore technology because um, their valuations are higher than other sectors. But if you invest on a, in a more sector-neutral manner, invest still in technology companies, but buying those technology companies that trade at a reasonable price relative to other technology companies, um, you can mitigate a lot of the risk from value investing. All right. Now, there is studies on, uh, the first studies were on valuation. The Ken French studies, for instance, the academic studies um, that that supported a lot of the modern value investing. But later studies looked at things like momentum, which essentially boils down to those companies that are performing well currently are likely to continue to perform well, or quality, the quality of a company. And if you can blend those factors in with value, you can substantially reduce um, the risk for from a pure value portfolio. So by having a investment selection process that doesn't just lean on buying the cheapest company, but includes quality companies that are performing well recently and investing in, across the U.S. economy, you can have a lot of the benefits from value investing while mitigating a good chunk of the extra risk that sometimes creeps in with a pure value investor. As Mark alluded to before, it, it's kind of ambiguous whether value is, is less risky than growth or more risky. But by blending those things, uh, you can certainly be give yourself every advantage to be less risky. If I could add on to that, the, the two main sort of pitfalls of value investing are, are company selection where you where you get grab you gravitate to things that are cheap and some of those things deserve to be cheap. And the the term that we use for that is value traps. It's cheap, but it just keeps getting cheaper. And and the other is that the style itself can be out of favor. Growth can do better than value, not just in these bear markets, but sort of just over a number of years for a long time. And that can run for 10 and 15 years. And even though this is an approach that in the long run, every, every longer period has done better, it's tough to be underperforming for 15 years and think you're you know, doing the right thing. And so... The, as Tom alluded to, there's some there are some ways to blend value with other things like quality and momentum, that and and sector neutrality that tend to mitigate those risks and make that easier ride along the way. 
one quick question and then we'll wrap this up. If we're going through a phase of really long, non-value performing stocks, how do you keep your investors focused? The challenge is you don't know how long that period is, is, is going to be until it's over. And so we came through one of those. We're in the middle of a, of a substantial recovery for value right now that we think is overdue and likely to continue and, and all the other sort of stars seem to be aligned to that, but, but we don't know. But certainly prior to that, it was, it was tough. There were a lot of people that, that got impatient with approach that they didn't fully understand. And so we, we just had to, to double down on the education and explaining why these are uh, better companies to own in the long run than the things that your friends are talking about that are, that are, you know, 50, 60 times earnings, but, but all in the news and, uh, and have been doing well and running circles around the, the, the cheaper, but and, and in better long-term prospect um, value holdings that, that you hold. Sounded almost like a, a Yogi Berra-ism uh, there. The, you know, we don't know when it's going to be over until it's over. But I totally get it. Yeah. Totally get it. It's the way it is, yeah. Yes. All right. How can listeners reach you folks at Foster & Motley? We're on the web at, at uh, fosterandmotley.com. Spell out the A-N-D. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you'd like to add? I, I think the one thing to add uh, on our website, you can go to the insight section and see some of our recent writing. Uh, we try to write quite a bit, but we also have all the podcasts that we're recording today on the insights tab on our website. And you can also give us a phone call at 513-561-6640. Excellent. Gentlemen, thank you so much for this time. And listeners, follow this Foster & Motley podcast about life and wealth for all sorts of investing and planning information. And please share with others. I'm Patrice Sikora, and let's talk again later. Thank you for listening to Foster & Motley, a podcast about wealth and life. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information discussed and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Foster & Motley. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions regarding your financial planning and investments. Foster & Motley is not affiliated with any third-party providers. Any mention of a third-party provider does not imply an endorsement of that provider. If you decide to utilize a third-party provider, you do so at your own risk.